Hello and welcome to the History of the Copts, episode 37. One Empire, Two Churches. So last time, we stopped with the elevation of Justinian in August of 527 AD, where Pope Timothy III was still the sole patriarch of Alexandria, and with him, essentially, all of the influential Miaphysite bishops of the empire. The two Syrian bishops who deserve special attention were Julian and Severus, who were setting up two different hostile camps. Justinian, for the most part, in the early part of his reign, would continue the religious policy of Justin, which, as far as Egypt was concerned, meant leaving the Copts to their own devices. So long as Bob Timothy was alive and keeping things under control, Justinian had no reason to mess with the careful balance in Egypt. The other part of Justinian's religious policy in those early years was to rid the empire of anyone who did not ascribe to the Christian faith as defined in Nicaea. As such, by the first year of his reign, he published a series of heresy edicts where pagans, Manetians, and Samaritans suffered heavily. And this were pretty much paganism officially dies in the East, with the closing of the philosophy school in Athena in 529 AD being the symbolically significant date. Also, in those early years, he started publishing his monumental law code, which really many of our modern civil law can be traced back to. Also, to be clear, on the ground, especially in Egypt, local customs and informal arbitration by the bishops still reigned supreme. Around the same time of the publication of the first part of the law code and the closing of the philosophy school in, in Asima, a small concession by Severus in Egypt to an obscure bishop ended up being the start of something big. You see, so far in the empire, despite the theological differences, a city in Syria can only have one bishop, and in villages, there was no such thing as Miaphysite churches and Chalcedonian churches. There was only one church. It just did not make any sense in the prevailing ideology of the emerging Byzantine Christian Empire. An ideology that did not recognize a line between church and state. And as such, anything but one emperor, one government hierarchy, and one closely linked church hierarchy was foreign. Even when Alexandria had two competing bishops in the days of Timothy the Cat, for most of the time, only one of them controlled all the churches. And Alexandria was really the exception, not the rule. Over in Syria, especially in the Syriac-speaking parts, and in the borders with the desert and Persia, the population was wholeheartedly Miaphysite. But since the days of Justin, they had Chalcedonian clergy. Naturally, many of them stopped going to the churches, or at least taking communion. The traditional solution to this problem was to work to convince the imperial government to let the Miaphysite clergy back, 
but this solution was fading away under Justin, and then Justinian's early policies. The second, more radical solution was to ordain new Miaphysite clergy who then conformed their own churches and in time their own hierarchy separate from the Chalcedonians. But the Miaphysite bishops in Egypt, led by Severus and Timothy, really tried to avoid going this route, as they still held out hope to bring the imperial government around. The historical precedent was finally broken in 530 AD, when a Syrian monk bishop named John of Tila finally convinced Severus to let him ordain new clergy. But even then, Severus instructed John to ordain new clergy only in the Persian frontier, where the competing faction was really the Nestorians and not the Chalcedonians. John used his prerogative really so, and his mission was incredibly successful, that word of his work reached all the way to Justinian. And Justinian, rather than squash the new development, he quite purposefully turned a blind eye and let the Miaphysite establish a foothold in the Syriac-speaking parts of Syria, after being under intense pressure for the last 10 years. He coupled the purposeful inaction to John of Tila ordinations, was allowing the Miaphysite monks to reclaim their monasteries as well. Again, turning the area into a Miaphysite stronghold. So, a balance of sorts was taking place in Syria. The Chalcedonian bishop of Antioch, Ephraim, was winning in the cities and the Greek-speaking area, while John of Tila and the monks were strong in the rural Syriac-speaking parts. Also, to be fair, with John's ordinations, the president of the one church was seriously bent, but not completely broken yet. It just set up the stage for the future breaking of that president. As I said earlier, in these parts of Syria, there were almost no Chalcedonians. So generally speaking, there was no rival churches in the same villages or towns across of each other yet. Now, Justinian in action in Syria was not really because of his open mind or a desire to let the Syrians worship as they like. Rather, he turned a blind eye because he was in the middle of a war with Persia that started last week under Justin, and his armies were not doing so great. Not to mention in the capital, during the winter of 531 AD, when the campaign season was over, a full-blown revolt took place that almost took Justinian's throne and life. The Nika revolts that I mentioned last week. I actually changed my plans and decided not to dwell too much on the Nika revolts, as it will end up being a long, unnecessary tangent from the narrative. But basically, the take-home message here was that shoring up the support of the locals in the Persian frontier was the prudent course of action, because Justinian stood on very shaky ground. Also, I do not want to neglect Theodora, who probably played a large role in setting up her husband's religious policy. 
She was instrumental in saving the throne during the Nika revolts, which probably gave her even a freer hand in acting independently of Justinian. By the end of the revolt, half of the city was destroyed, including the main church, and 30,000 of the city inhabitants, mostly of the blues and the green factions, were dead. But on the bright side, Justinian can now be a great builder by rebuilding the city, and basically any semblance of political opposition or a check on his power was dead. So all in all, the crushed revolt turned out pretty good for Justinian's legacy. This is where the famous church, the Hagia Sophia, or the Church of the Holy Wisdom, gets built, and it will stand as the greatest church ever built for a long time after Justinian. About a year after letting the Miaphysites be in Syria, the Persian War was in a stalemate, and the Persian Shah died, giving a strong incentive for his son to pursue peace to consolidate his power. Peace sounded like a good idea to Justinian as well, who had plans for the West and needed to secure the Persian border first. So, an agreement for, quote, an eternal peace was reached, where Justinian ended up paying 11,000 pounds of gold as the price to secure the borders. To give you a perspective on that number, Egypt's total tax assessment for a year was about the same amount, and Egypt contributed the most taxes to the imperial treasury. The whole arrangement was pretty much built on a promise from the Persians not to attack. So 11,000 pounds of gold bought Justinian a promise. A promise that would be broken shortly. Anyway, with the peace secured on the Persian borders and any political or religious opposition crushed in the capital, the political incentive to let the Miaphysites be in Syria went away, and thus they could no longer be left to their own devices. To his credit, so, rather than just turn on the monks again, Justinian tried a novel approach. Basically, he invited the leading Miaphysites and the Chalcedonian theologians to the capital, where he asked them to debate the issues in front of him and try to come up with a solution. Again, historians speculate that Theodora was behind this move. Also, before the invite, Justinian received a masterful theological treaty from the monks in Syria that may have nudged him to our talking wisdom. As, admittedly, I do not dwell on theological points as I should, I have posted the full text of their letter on the website. It will basically give you all the theological points of the struggle, and then some. So, go ahead and go to historyofcoptspodcast.wordpress.com History here is written as HX, if that's what you're looking for. It will be under this week's episode tab. In addition to doing an excellent job 
of summarizing the position of the Miaphysites at this point, it also forms a foundation for Justinian's efforts to reconcile the competing factions. In essence, the letter stated that Chalcedon cannot be accepted because 1. Nestorius in error have divided Christ into two natures. 2. Theodore, the teacher of Nestorius, and the Crypto-Nestorian bishops, Theodore and Theodoret of Cyrus, were all accepted as orthodox by Chalcedon and were supported by the tomb of Leo. 3. Due to the above, Chalcedon is an Nestorian operation and cannot be accepted. Now, this is not everything that the letter said, it's like three pages long. Rather, it is more or less what Justinian got out of it. So, he naturally concluded that if he managed to excommunicate Theodore, Theodore, and Theodoret, he would solve the problem, as the Miaphysites would then have no reason to reject Chalcedon. Thus was the start of the next great ecclesiastical struggle, the Three Chapters Controversy. We're still a bit far away when it really kicks into high gear, and we will probably get there in two weeks. But just know that its theological foundation was built from the letter from the Syrian monks to Justinian. The actual debates in the capital, so, was a bit of a letdown from the historical perspective. First, Severus was invited, but he decided not to go, which immediately put the legitimacy of the Miaphysite voices present in question. To quote Severus directly from his letter to the emperor declining the invitation, he writes, I will not, by drinking from the copiousness of this rich stream of your gentleness, cause myself to err and be rendered proud. But I have determined to declare what is in my mind. For I am afraid, lest if my meanness be openly seen in the royal city, many persons may be alarmed. And so I am in truth nothing but a merely avowed person bound under this heavy yoke of sins. When they hear of this, many persons may be roused to anger. Yeah, Severus can write. The summary of his letter was that he calculated that his presence in the capital would probably hurt the discussion more than help due to his reputation. Interestingly, in the same letter, he devoted a large part to it to denounce Julian who, quote, has been perverted to the heresy of the Manetians and reckons the voluntary saving passions of Christ, the great God, as a fantasy. So basically, Severus's absence casted doubt on whether any compromise reached there would be really accepted by the rest of the Miaphysites, and his letter clearly betrays that he is way more concerned about Julian than whatever the emperor was trying to do. Second, the discussion lasted like a year, but only one meeting is preserved in the historical record. In this meeting, the presiding officer, 
the son of the politically powerful Abion, an Egyptian aristocrat and a convert from being a Miaphysite that I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, tried to serve as a neutral party, as both an Egyptian and a Chalcedonian. But nothing came out of the meetings, and the two sides kept dancing around each other. Justinian did attend so, and shortly after the meetings, he published a curious edict that was in effect a second Hinoticon. Also, no one called it that at the time. So I guess in theory, the Miaphysites can claim victory by pointing to that edict. But then again, it might be just Theodora. The edict was meant to be the basis of the religious policy of the empire going forward. It was a standard generic statement that emphasized the face of Nicaea and the Trinity, but completely ignored all the talk about natures and Chalcedon. From it, it was understood that all the anathemas under Justin were no longer in action, and in addition to completely ignoring Chalcedon and natures, it also did not say anything about the tomb of Leo. So in a practical sense, it removed any legal basis for the persecution of the Miaphysites, and let the two factions exist legally. Now, this edict actually led to a period of remarkable theological peace within the empire, where almost everyone was happy. It was accepted by the Roman papacy, the Coptic papacy, Severus, and the Patriarch in Constantinople. Even when the extreme Chalcedonian elements in the capital, i.e. the sleepless monks, tried to protest, they were shut down by none other than the Pope himself, who denounced them as Nestorians. And on the other side, Severus found himself invited as a guest of honor to the capital, where he talked with Justinian and ended up staying there for a while. For all the world, it seemed that Justinian was able to reunite the church with a simple edict that just ignored the problem. And not only that, the Aryan Vandal Kingdom over North Africa had just collapsed after being defeated by the Empire armies, and North Africa returned back to the Empire and Orthodoxy in a remarkably easy campaign. Had Justinian stopped there, he would have achieved more than any other emperor ever dreamed of achieving. Alas, he would not stop there. Rather, he would push forward to acquire more territory and rule over more people. And in that process, plus to be fair to him, some very unfortunate natural disasters, he will leave the empire broken. First, after defeating the Vandals, he immediately set his eyes on Italy, where the other Aryan kingdom there was going through a difficult transition of power and was quite vulnerable. And for that, the Pope's assistance in Rome was important, and the Pope will visit Constantinople shortly and serve as a catalyst for a complete reversal of Justinian's earlier policies. But we will get there in details next week.
For now, to close up this episode, I want to focus on Egypt, where Pope Timothy III died in February 535 AD, leaving the theological beasts on very unstable footing. You see, if you really want to know how did the Miaphysites survive Justin's persecution perfectly intact, you have to give the credit to Pope Timothy III. Sure, Severus has been inspired the movement, and his writings became the basis of the Miaphysite theology. But Timothy's statesmanship is really what kept the whole thing together. The next patriarch of Alexandria would have to fill some very big shoes, and everyone knew it. The wrong choice can quickly wreck the beast established by Justinian's Hinoticon and miss with the all-important tax revenue of Egypt, revenue that was badly needed for the upcoming Italian campaign. To make the problem worse, Julian and Severus have been bitter enemies for years now, and it became quite clear that the followers of the two men intended to fight over the election. The final element in this volatile mix was the Empress Theodora, who, as a Miaphysite, was quite interested in the affairs of Alexandria and intended on getting involved in the election process. When Timothy died, one of Theodorus's agents happened to be in Alexandria, and rather than go through the normal election process and maybe work behind the scenes, he interfered pretty openly and got one of Timothy's deacons named Suidosius appointed as the patriarch. Now, Bob Suidosius was naturally a Miaphysite and leaned heavily to Severus's side in the dispute between him and Julian, which worked in his favor as far as the Empress Theodora was concerned. But both for the Copts and Justinian, he was not an acceptable candidate. For Justinian, he would have preferred someone who is a clear-cut Chalcedonian, or at least someone who owes his loyalty to Justinian himself and can be flexible to avoid any theological issues with the newly acquired North African provinces and hopefully Italy. For the Copts, they absolutely insisted on the imperial government staying out of their church and were not about to accept a government-appointed one, Miaphysite or not. So immediately after his elevation, riots broke against Theodosius and called for the appointment of another patriarch, Gianus, who ascribed to Julian's flavor of theology. Which brings us to a pretty interesting juncture of the history of the Copts, where they actually rejected the patriarch with the severe in theology in favor to one who is in Julian's camp. Pretty fascinating, especially if we consider the high reverence that Severus holds in the Coptic church today. So what do we make of this interesting development? There is a very interesting book called 
Christian Egypt by a historian named E.R. Hardy that advances the theory that the whole Miaphysite movement in Egypt was just a nationalistic movement where religion ended up being the means of resistance. The Egyptians' reaction to Dioscorus II's elevation from a couple of episodes ago and their reaction to the elevation of Theodosius's now would be the best instances to advance this theory. Both of these bishops had the correct credentials, and both more or less held the correct theology as far as the Copts were concerned. Yet, in both instances, they were not accepted by the Copts because the imperial government had a hand in their appointment. So, in essence, According to this theory, the rejection of Theodosius had more to do with his cozy ties with Theodora than any actual theology. But then, this theory kind of breaks apart if you dig deep enough, as it is quite clear from the available evidence that almost no one in Egypt had ever imagined a world where the emperor was not the head of their government. A nation-state, in the modern meaning of the word, was about 1500 years away from materializing in anyone's head. You can make the argument that the Copts were stumbling toward the world where their patriarch would end up an independent client of the empire, where the yearly tax would be similar to a yearly tribute. But if that's the case, no one had left a trace of it. So still, there is not much convincing evidence there. On the other extreme, you can make the case that the mob knew exactly the differences of an incorruptible flesh of Christ as Julian preached, and a fully human Christ as Severus wrote. And they picked the Julian theology and fought to advance it. But again, that's a bit far-fetched as even elite monks more or less supported or were against the persons of Severus and Julian, and the conversation were about them more than their ideas. So, if it's not pure differences of theology, or the Copts wanted to pull away from the imperial government, then what was it? On a foundational level, it was essentially about self-preservation and personal interest. The Bishop of Alexandria had actual, real, civil power, and he controlled the fortunes of the Egyptians more than any other person in Egypt. A patriarch picked by the people, or at least by the elite of the people, would look out for them and their interests, and by association, you can argue, the interest of Egypt. A patriarch picked by the imperial government, so, well, he would be more or less another bureaucrat working for the emperor. And no one wanted that, regardless of their feelings toward Chalcedon. Thus, it made perfect sense for the Alexandrian to riot and demand their own man, Gianus, as the patriarch. Was Julian more popular than Severus? Yeah, quite possibly, and especially with the monks, 
as I have mentioned before, the extremist separatist elements tended to favor Julian. On the moderate, let's keep working toward unity elements favored Severus. But at best, this was a secondary issue. As Pope Theodosius would be continuously accused by the Copts of, quote, sharing the sentiments of the emperor, rather than holding the wrong theology. As a result of the rioting, Bopsidosius either left Alexandria or maintained a low profile, and Gaianus was elevated as a rival bishop and was essentially in complete control of the churches. This stayed the case for about a hundred days, until Theodora intervened again and sent an armed legion to install Theodosius by force and arrest and exile Gaianus. First, did the newly freed Carthage, and then eventually to the Mediterranean island of Sardinia. So, now we have two rival bishops in Alexandria. And just like the old times of Pretorius and Dioscorus, one in exile that the people wanted, and one in Alexandria that the imperial government wanted. Only this time, both of them are Miaphysites. And in a little bit, we will get our third rival, a Chalcedonian patriarch, where finally it will be clear to everyone that the days of the one church for the one empire are long over. Now, it is going to be two churches, and unfortunately, there would be no going back to that one church. Thank you for listening. Farewell, and until next week. Thank you.